It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week, we're in Parliament Square in London to ask who can lead Britain through Brexit. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, is stepping down after three years in the job. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. The race to become the next leader of the Conservative Party, and therefore of Britain itself, has begun. Will they succeed where May failed? Some 10 candidates are still in the running, and extra heat has been added to the race this week by the state visit of President Donald Trump. He had a few words for the current frontrunners. So I know Boris. Uh, I like him. I've liked him for a long time. He's, uh, I think he'd do a very good job. I know Jeremy. I think he'd do a very good job. I don't know Michael, but uh, would he do a good job, Jeremy? Tell me. Later on in the programme, I'll be speaking to Jeremy Hunt, currently Foreign Secretary. But our budget columnist choice for the most interesting candidate in the race is a surprise challenger from England's most northerly constituency and a newcomer to the Cabinet with a background as a diplomat and official in some of the world's most war-torn countries. He's been pounding the miles across the country in a roving campaign and we caught up with him on his latest stop. Hi, I'm Rory. Uh, Do come and meet me today. I'm now in Parliament Square. I've just been talking to some taxi drivers and I was talking to some climate protesters. Love to hear you, love to be challenged by you. Come and see me anytime in the next hour, Parliament Square. Rory Stewart, Secretary of State for International Development and MP for Penrith and the Border. Rory, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much for having me. Outdoors, because you're spending a lot of your time outdoors at the moment. You made your name in the wider world. You once walked across Afghanistan uh, when you were working there. You've often put yourself out there and walked countries talking to people. What is it about taking a campaign out and walking and talking that is different from the conventional way of political communication that maybe we can learn a bit from? I'm a Trumpian anti-Trump. I believe that it's possible to jump over the media, just as he does, except I'm jumping over it for the centre ground of politics, not for the extremes. I, I discovered it almost by accident. I tried to talk about care for the frail and the elderly, in an interview to the Daily Telegraph, and they weren't very interested in covering it. So I posted a small video on Twitter and found that I was getting four times as many views on that as the entire readership of the Daily Telegraph. I went to Afghanistan first after 9-11. I was walking across Asia, so I walked across Iran. As you do. Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal. I stayed in about 550 village houses, walking about 25 miles a day sleeping on people's floors, listening to them talk about their families and government and religion. And for me, this was the great change in my life. I'd been a British diplomat, I'd worked in embassies all around the world, and what it showed me 
is the surreal gap between the rhetoric of embassies and governments and the reality on the ground. So, you know, what's central here in Britain also is the gap between saying we have, for example, in prisons a zero-tolerance attitude to violence and the reality that we can have as many as 30,000 assaults in prison a year. What does it mean to say that? This is beginning to look like a race that can only be won by someone who's pretty hardline on Brexit. And you're not. So what makes you think that you can keep going that momentum and get people to be interested and to like you who aren't just enjoying your challenges, your provocations and the wit of your campaign? It's effectively the primary, right? This is effectively the primary, but it's a primary run by a much smaller base. The problem is that the promises that all the other candidates are making are deeply misleading and they're going to disappoint people. And by disappointing people, again, so remember the Prime Minister made a whole series of promises about Brexit that she wasn't able to deliver, we're going to end up in deep problems. The second thing that's important is that I've discovered that telling the truth is surprisingly popular. Right? I can now put out a video putting forward uncomfortable truths on Brexit and get something like literally 45 times the number of views but that any other candidates. what is the uncomfortable truth? You've got to lay that out for us. Well, the uncomfortable truth is that there is no new deal coming from Brussels, that you cannot get no deals through Parliament, that even if you were able to get no deals through Parliament in some extraordinary move, which I can't really see, it's not a destination, it's a failure to reach a destination. And therefore, if you want to get Brexit done, there is only one Brexit deal and there's only one route, which is through Parliament. In other words, what the Prime Minister has been trying to do has to be done more skillfully, and there is literally no alternative. When you say more skillfully, what do you mean? You trailed a, a coat earlier in the week saying, watch this space. A lot of people think the reason that deal doesn't get through Parliament is there simply isn't a majority for it, and even if one were not Theresa May or claimed to be more skillful, that actually it is not a deal that can be done. What makes you think it can be different? So we got 270 votes for that deal, and we're going to need 315 to get it through. So we need 45 additional votes. And what we know is that there are 80 Labour MPs who are against the second referendum, who come from strong leave constituencies who want a deal. How do you unlock them? I believe the answer is to do what they did in Ireland over abortion, which is to have a Brexit assembly, which takes the heat and the energy out of Parliament and gives people an ability to discuss the issues in detail and then come back into Parliament with recommendations and unglue the system. Because we've got to unglue a fundamental tension between a direct democracy that voted to leave and an indirect democracy in Parliament, which has been frustrating that process. The way to do that has to be a new democratic constitutional experiment. And I think the answer to that, the best answer to that, is to follow Ireland's example with the Citizens' Assembly. Wouldn't that just string matters out a bit? And if one were sceptical of your position, you'd say you just want to do anything rather than allow Britain to leave the EU so we'll muck about with assemblies we'll have another look at the constitution and we still won't be any further forward it's absolutely not my position I think Britain staying in the EU would be deeply divisive would revolve resolve nothing and would leave at least half the country bitterly angry one of the central points of my campaign is that I believe in compromise I believe in a center ground I believe in a common ground which brings together Remain voters and Brexit voters. And that has to be a Brexit deal, because that's what people voted for, but it has to be a Brexit deal that works for the British economy, close to Europe economically, close to Europe politically, close to Europe diplomatically. My Staying in the customs union? If you're talking about zero tariffs, zero quota access to the European markets, I think that's central 
for the British manufacturing industry, central for our motor vehicles, central for farmers. Because where these people who are talking on the hard Brexit side about WTO rules are misleading everybody, is they're talking about going zero tariff on agriculture. That means Argentinian Brazilian beef coming in zero tariff, US wheat coming in zero tariff. It's the end of our farming industry. It would mean Chinese cars coming in and us facing 40% tariff barriers on agriculture with Europe and 10% tariff barriers on other goods. So it's madness for our economy to go down that route. So it doesn't sound like you like the phenomenal trade deal idea that Donald Trump was mooting not far away from where we're standing here at Westminster only a day ago. Well, the one thing that people should have learned through this process is that there's nothing easy or quick about trade deals. Congress would have to approve that trade deal. Nancy Pelosi's made it clear that unless we retain the current arrangements on the Irish border, Congress will not approve that trade deal. And the other thing that we know about President Trump, with all due respect, is that he's not famous for being a great believer in the win-win and the art of the deal. He's not famous for being a great one for rolling over. He's famous for asserting America first. Let's look forward to the final stages of the race that you find yourself in. And I know you have to go uh, back into Parliament. I guess you're scrubbing up votes at the moment, to put it a bit Very much. Crudely. That's the key of this, yeah. <laughs> uh, lead candidate being Boris Johnson, he says he will go to Brussels and get a different deal by October the 31st. Will he? No, he can't. Brussels is barely functioning between now and October the 31st. It's in recess, it's appointing a new commissioner... Anybody who pretends they can get a new deal out of Brussels by October 31st is fooling themselves in the world. So if he's saying he's going to get a new deal by October 31st, if he doesn't, he's going for no deal. It just means one thing. He's going to try to go for no deal on the 31st of October, and he's going to find that Parliament isn't going to let that happen. So he's going to let everybody down. The lead can... There you go, you got a fan. <laughs> There's one, you just need a few more and you're home and dry, right? Boris Johnson clearly in the lead there, the most charismatic candidate in the race, setting himself up there as prepared to risk no deal if, by chance, he became the leader. Would you be prepared to stay in the Cabinet, work alongside him to deliver the Brexit that you feel that we need on certain terms? No. And it's sad because I'm a Cabinet Minister, I love my job, I'm deeply proud to be Secretary of State for International Development, but I couldn't do it if he asked me to be... Secretary of State in his cabinet advocating for a no-deal Brexit, which I think is undeliverable and if delivered deeply damaging, I would be advocating for something I profoundly disagree in and it would make no sense at all. Might just be an extension. He might just spin it out like everyone else does. His policy now is clear. His policy is that he's going to try to negotiate with Brussels by October and if he doesn't, he'll take us out on a no-deal Brexit. I cannot possibly back that policy. It is dishonest, it is undeliverable, and it would be deeply damaging to people's trust in politics and to this country. Last thought, both you and Boris Johnson, both old Etonians, one of the best-known, poshest British schools, is that one too many Etonians in a race to lead a modern political party? Probably too, too many in the race to lead a modern political party. <laughs> Thank you, Rory Stewart. Let you get on your way. You do you. You, you cost members of the public. No, I'm actually I'm going to go and cost members of Parliament. That's the way I'm going to win this first round anyway. Thank you. Rory Stewart may be one of the more unusual candidates, but a brutal pruning process of hopefuls and his very soft Brexit views make it unlikely he'll make the final two put forward to a vote of the party membership. Leading the field are the bombastic former Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, and Michael Gove, Environment Secretary and a Brexiteer from the outset. 
the leading hybrid figure, though, who voted Remain but wants to deliver Brexit, is the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. He's run into trouble for appearing to waver on whether he'd risk a no-deal outcome or not. A cabinet veteran, he was previously Culture Secretary, overseeing the London Olympics in 2012, and he's the country's longest-serving health secretary. He came into our studio, and I wanted to know what was his secret sauce for winning the Tory leadership and becoming Prime Minister. In my case, uh, I wouldn't just be the first Prime Minister who's been an entrepreneur by background. I'd be the first Prime Minister who's run the NHS, the fifth largest organisation in the world. I'd be the first Prime Minister who's won a marginal seat in a quarter of a century. These are things that are going to be helpful uh, facing the challenges we face. You've called it political suicide to allow a no-deal Brexit to happen. Subsequently, you seemed to suggest that you would negotiate as if no deal were possible. Can you just absolutely clarify for us, what is your position on no deal? Yes, um, I will. I didn't say no deal was political suicide. I said having a general election would be political suicide. And if your only way to deal with a parliament that is blocking no deal was to have a general election, that would be political suicide. I've always believed that we should keep no deal on the table. Um, because and you I think, still think that? I still do. And I also, then it might happen if you keep it on the table. Well, it might be taken away by Parliament, and that's what's already happened this year. That's why we have to be honest about the parliamentary arithmetic that we face. And I've always said that if the only way to deliver Brexit was leaving without a deal, and that really was the only way to do it, then I would do that. Because I think in the end, the democratic risk of not delivering Brexit is higher than the economic risk of no deal. But I would do it with a heavy heart because of the risks to our businesses, the risks to the union. And I would not do it if there was a chance of a good deal that could get through Parliament. And what I want to be is the Prime Minister who gets that good deal on the table, negotiates it. I'm a businessman by background. Um, I negotiated the junior doctor's contract, which is one of the longest contract negotiations we've ever had, uh, a very bitter industrial dispute. But I also did the BBC licence fee in less than 24 hours in 2010. So I've, I've got experience of negotiations. Both. You're not going to do this one in 24 hours, are you? Uh, do you think, think so. No Deal is as bad as The Economist has been pretty clear all along, and we've done very deep dives on it from a number of perspectives that we think it is pretty catastrophic for the UK economy and not very good for... Europe either. Do you share the depth of feeling that The Economist has? I agree. No deal would not be good for the British economy. Um, uh, It would have a a significant impact on our economic growth. Um, It would also be bad for the EU. Um, The extent to which it will be bad really depends on the context. If you had, if you like, a hostile no deal where uh, you know, we were threatening not to pay our bills um, and there was a, an atmosphere of animosity, then the economic consequences could be really very damaging indeed. If you had a, a more constructive atmosphere with both sides having tried very hard but not able to reach a conclusion, uh, then the consequences could be mitigated. And you can't know until you're actually in the situation, which of those two it's going to be. How high is the probability of a no deal in percentage terms, roughly? Uh, Well, I can't say that. I mean, my my view is that Parliament has already shown that it won't allow no deal. 
It's already passed a bill over the government's head, taking control of the order paper in Parliament, completely unprecedented, um, in order to require the Has Parliament overstepped? Well, you know, I personally think that uh, Parliament should leave these matters to the executive, but we are a parliamentary democracy. We have to follow the law, and if Parliament makes a law, even the Prime Minister has to follow it. So I think it is very unrealistic to think that Parliament wouldn't do that again. We have one candidate in the race, uh, Dominic Raab, saying that he would prorogue, an interesting word that we've all got to get our tongues around now here in the UK. Basically, he would sort of disband temporarily Parliament if Parliament were blocking us leaving uh, the EU in a no-deal scenario. Would you follow him? Uh, I don't think that would work. I think the idea in a democracy that uh, if you don't like what Parliament's doing, you just close down Parliament... Um, the government might have some technical legal powers to allow it to do that. But we prorogue Parliament when there's a Queen's speech and you suspend Parliament for a week, 10 days uh, while uh, the Queen's speech is being drawn up and then the Queen arrives to reopen Parliament. But to do it because you wanted to force through a no-deal Brexit seems to be something that would be uh, pretty impossible to imagine ever working. What do you think the view of the Queen would be? Well, that's something you'd have to ask the Queen. But, uh, you know, it should, should be the next to... booking. But you know the system very well. I, I think what we... do you think the view of and it does actually figure here because in the end she opens Parliament. What would her view be? Well, I think uh, all governments should seek to inv- avoid involving the Queen in these kinds of party political issues. That is what our constitution depends on. Donald Trump has just been visiting. You've spent some time with him. How did you find him? He was ebullient. Uh, On good form. Uh, I think he enjoyed the state visit. I think he was very moved by the uh, D-Day commemorations. Um, And, you know, he is a larger than life politician. And, you know, you can love or loathe Donald Trump. What about you? Do you love or loathe Donald Trump? Well, I have a lot of respect for the president. I don't agree with him on everything. Uh, I disagree with him on climate change, for example, um, on the Iran nuclear deal. But what I notice about America is that they have a GDP growth rate that is double ours. And I think that at the point of Brexit, one of the things that we need to consider very carefully is what we do to turbocharge the British economy. And why is that? Just think what a a Remain-supporting newspaper like The Economist, what would make you in 10 years' time, through gritted teeth, write an editorial entitled Britain's Surprising Brexit Success? Well, the answer is you might just write that editorial if our growth rate has been higher than European Union countries over that 10 years. You'd definitely write the opposite if it had been lower. So I think the name of the game, if we want to make a success of Brexit, is to turbocharge the economy. That's why I've said I think we should cut corporation tax to 12.5%, which is Irish levels, as a strong signal that on the point of Brexit, we are determined to be in the most pro-business, pro-enterprise, high-tech, greenest economy in Europe. Just returning to Donald Trump for a second, he said you would do a good job. What do you think he admires in you? You'll have to ask the president those questions. But, um, you know, I've met him on a number of occasions as foreign secretary. I've interacted with him. I think that people like President Trump respect you if you tell them when you disagree with them. But they want you to do it up front. And they like a debate and they like people to stand their ground. But they like to know in the end 
uh, as we do in this country, that you value the relationship between your country and America. And you know, the reality is that America today, under President Trump, is bankrolling a significant amount of the defense of Europe. And you know, we need to recognize that you know, in terms of the changing global order, when President Trump asks us to spend a greater share of our GDP on defense, he's asking for something that's intrinsically fair. You've been quite warm about this visit. You've gone on national media here in Britain making, as you are now, quite soothing, quite warm noises about the president. What do you say to those who say actually many of his values are not those that should be emulated or celebrated and who have wished for a moment perhaps of of those at the very top of politics like yourself to send a a clearer message about that to this president? Well, look at the reason that President Trump came to Portsmouth yesterday to commemorate the D-Day landings exactly 75 years ago. Uh, That was a moment of profound importance because we were celebrating an alliance between Britain and America that far transcends... Well, that's in the past. Oh, no, no, hang uh, Donald on. Trump's let me answer, Anna. That far offenses, if such no, they no, are, are happening now. But you've got to let me answer the question. That alliance transcends any individual politicians. So when you look at the world today and you see a much more aggressive Russia, you see a more autonomous China... You have to ask yourself, is that alliance between the UK and the USA, the two countries that created the international order that has made the world richer, more peaceful, record life expectancy, uh, record numbers of diseases it like cured? No, I'm it sorry does to have to move you along you know, a little but, bit, but it sounds like you're saying despite. Question. Well, no, no, answer got to, the question. Yeah, I am what? answering the question. I'm on. saying you've got to say to yourself, is that alliance still relevant? And I think it is. And in the end, I think that America is the leader of the free world. And we need to work alongside America. And as I say, with President Trump, there are things we disagree with. But on things like the economy, on the the way he has boosted growth in the American economy, there's lots we can learn from. But underneath all of that is uh, the protection, the defense, the sustaining of a world order that I think has been uniquely successful. And would you say we need more of a pivot towards the US as an alternative to the EU, given that unless things change radically, we are moving further away from the European Union? Well, I don't see it as an either or. I think that we have an enormous amount in common with European countries and with the United States. And, you know, if you believe in Western liberal values, as I think The Economist does, you have to recognize that that is a combination of both championing our values and the security that always has to underpin it. And both the big European countries and America has a big role to play. And I think our role post-Brexit is to be, if you like, an invisible chain linking the democracies of the world, helping us to stand together uh, with greater strength, because I think we are facing a world where those values are ones that we can't take for granted. President Trump this week promised the UK a phenomenal trade deal, but one where everything is on the table, and that includes NHS procurement, which you know a lot about as a former health secretary. How realistic is that it does seem to be something of a requirement from the American side, however strongly many Brits feel that the NHS uh, should be in their hands and and not those of uh, American companies in any meaningful form? Well, I spent a bit of time explaining to President Trump about the NHS when he was over here. 
You mean he uh, didn't understand it first? Well, he's the American president. I don't expect him to understand everything about our healthcare system here. Um, and he actually clarified in an interview with Piers Morgan that he was not seeking to put NHS procurement on the table. Uh, when we talk about healthcare products, if you're talking about you know the supplying of medicines or medical devices or you know, chemotherapy equipment, those kinds of things. Americans already supply a lot of that equipment anyway. They they could be part of a trade deal. But if you're talking about the ownership of the NHS, uh, that will not be on the table. So you've been Foreign Secretary uh, for over a year now, at the heart of the Brexit negotiations. They haven't succeeded. How did we get here that we need to, to learn from? And how much of it is the fault of Theresa May? Well, look, I don't think this is the time in her last week as leader of the Conservative Party to be pointing any fingers. As you say, we weren't successful in the end, and I think we're all very disappointed that that didn't happen. What can we learn? Well, one of the reasons that the EU stopped negotiating with us and making concessions was because they didn't believe that the British government and Theresa May could deliver a majority in Parliament. So I think... As we go back into this process again, we need to assemble a negotiating team that has on that team the DUP, uh, the ERG, which is a a wing of the Conservative Party, uh, Scottish and Welsh Conservatives, so that the EU know that any proposal made by the British government can be delivered through the British Parliament. I think it's one of the first rules of negotiation. People have to think they can bank your promises. And... uh, if we do that, and if we approach the negotiations in a uh, in a constructive tone, I believe there is a deal there because it is very much in the EU's interests to come to a deal, as it is in our interests. But if we go in with the wrong approach, they will just sit and wait for Parliament to block no deal. We'll end up having a huge debate over an extension. And I think for people on the Conservative side... The thing to remember is that Labour is beginning to look like a more attractive option for the European Union because uh, it supports the customs union and it looks like it's going to support a second referendum. So I think we need to be very careful not to find ourselves tipped into a general election which would do untold damage. You've mentioned that a couple of times. It comes up with all of the candidates. And yet a lot of people, and this is a very small selectorate, we don't even properly know how many uh, members of the Conservative Party will vote. But I think your last official figures are something under 150,000 members. Am I right? I don't know what the figures are either. (laughs) See, if you don't know and you're running, then it's a bit difficult for the rest of us. It's a very, very small selectorate. A lot of them are older. And not unreasonably, many people are saying... How can this group of people fairly decide who should be the next prime minister of this country? You should have a general election. Why are they wrong other than your own self-interest? Well, it's politics is about me arguing that the policies that I stand by are right for the country. And I happen to think that Jeremy Corbyn's policies would be absolutely disastrous for our country on many, many levels. And I think if we go to the country not having delivered what we promised to do last time, which is Brexit, we would be punished for that. And that could lead to Jeremy Corbyn going to Downing Street. So I don't I make no apology be... for saying that that would be against the national interest. And that's why we shouldn't do it. Well, I understand that from your position if you're arguing for the Conservative leadership. But more broadly, and you must feel some broader responsibility for the country, is it fair to change leaders in this slightly old donkey derby that we're in um, 
with a very small selectorate at a time of absolute national crisis without the country being consulted? Well, this is what happens in a parliamentary democracy because um, political parties form governments and they elect their leaders according to their own rules. And and that's how it is. But in the end, what will not change with the leadership election is the parliamentary arithmetic, the MPs that people have voted to send to Parliament. And that's why a new leader has to recognise the reality of that arithmetic, that it is likely to block no deal, and that therefore the only way through the conundrum is to find a better deal. And the question is, who is the candidate who is most likely to get that better deal? We've looked at other ways out of this impasse and in depth at a second referendum in some form. But what's your key argument for not simply going back to where we started? This started with going to the people and asking them whether they wanted to remain or leave uh, the EU. What would be wrong with going back? Well, let me put it this way. Let's say you had a second referendum and the result was exactly reversed and 52% voted remain and 48% voted leave. If that happened, would that settle the issue? You'd have 48% of the country that had voted twice to leave. They would be absolutely furious and they would say, well, you've had a second referendum. Can we have a third one? Can we have a fourth one? Uh, And uh, they would think it was profoundly undemocratic. So I don't think a second referendum solves anything. Would you rule it out in any circumstances? I will not vote for a second referendum. The way you unite the country is not by not delivering what was promised the first time around. It's by delivering Brexit, but finding a form of Brexit that works for the 48% who voted remain as well. And many of the people who voted to remain in the EU had perfectly legitimate concerns about Brexit. And one of the things we need to do is to reassure them that, for example... Well, you we're not, voted to remain. Yes. So you're, um, you're reassuring yourself. Well, we can go into those reasons as well. But one of the things we need to do is to reassure them that we're not going to change the fundamental character of the country. We're not going to pull up the drawbridge, put down the shutters, say foreigners not welcome. Um, no, but I must ask a, you, I'm sorry, I must ask you, did you regret voting remain in the re- referendum? Well, I voted remain because I was worried about the economic risks of leaving. Um, and the economy has proved to be much more robust since the Brexit decision than uh, we thought. If you remember, the Treasury was putting out forecasts saying we would have property price crashes and well, an immediate recession. No, but they promised that from the moment you decided to leave, these things would happen, and they haven't. So, so knowing so, what you know now, would you vote to leave? Well, I, if there was a referendum again, uh, I would vote to leave because I think this is the only way we will resolve this issue. Michael Gove, uh, who I think is sort of jostling with you for for second place uh, among the MPs at at the moment in this race, has said he wants to downgrade civil servants in the process. I guess the implication is that they've been a bit too wishy-washy, possibly they're a bit anti-Brexit to start with. Do you, do you think that the next negotiations will have a different character, perhaps not led by officials? I think we do need more political involvement in the negotiations because the central reason for the Brexit crisis that we're in is that we haven't been able to command a majority in the House of Commons. And that's not something that civil servants are paid to make a judgment on. That's what we as politicians have to make a judgment on. So uh, we have to do those negotiations knowing that what we promise we can deliver through Parliament. And you think, therefore, a withdrawal deal undersigned by the EU then would be realistic? I think it will be challenging to negotiate, but if they believe that what we promise we can deliver through Parliament, we will get much better engagement. 
We just interviewed Rory Stewart, who's a contender, perhaps even more of a soft Brexit contender in this race for, for this show also. He was very clear that he wouldn't serve under Boris Johnson. Are there any candidates that you would or wouldn't serve under in this race? No. You'd serve under anyone? I think there are outstanding candidates, and I think that uh, people uh, should do their duty. But I have to say that I also hope they would all be willing to serve under me, because I think what we have to do as a party is come together. Uh, This has been a very damaging period. If we don't deliver Brexit, we are finished as a party. And if we don't unite, we won't deliver Brexit. I'd like to turn finally to something else that's rather important. We get a bit myopic about Brexit don't we? And that's the Huawei case and particularly what the implications would be for security. Obviously, the American administration there has taken a very tough line with the company. You've managed to calm some concerns about that. I think about their equipment being used as a backdoor to espionage. But the first of uh, 5G networks in the UK has already been launched and Huawei hardware is in it. Are we locking the stable door after the horse has built it? Well, we have to make a decision as to the extent that we use Huawei. We haven't made that final decision. And the considerations are firstly what you've just said, which is the you know espionage issue. Can you be sure that that equipment is being used as a backdoor? Um, and we have some of the best technical experts in the world. We look at their advice very, very carefully. But the second issue is a strategic one, which is, you know, China has its Made in China 2025 program where they're explicit that they want to get an 80% global market share of telecoms equipment technology. And we have to ask ourselves, 5G is going to be something that dominates our lives in a way that 3G and 4G never did because it will uh, control our driverless cars. It will control the heating in our house. And that may be a reason why the more, and you've had this debate in cabinet, as we know, because it kept being leaked. Um, A lot of people just feel, therefore, you should just be much firmer in shutting Huawei out. Well, I'd say this is not about China. This is about whether we want to become technologically dependent on any third country when we know that these technologies are going to be so important to our future. And in terms of China more broadly, do you feel that China is an enemy to Western democracies and to the United Kingdom as things stand? How did you characterize China? You know a lot about it. Your wife is Chinese. You've traveled there extensively. What is our relationship with China? They're absolutely not an enemy. We should welcome the rise of China. When China catches up with the United States, we should remember, which some people say could happen as soon as 10 years time, we should remember their GDP per head will still only be a quarter of the US's GDP per head. And, you know, why shouldn't they want to raise their people out of grinding poverty? But China has to make choices about the kind of country it wants to be and the way that it uses its power. And we don't share their values when it comes to human rights and the rule Cyber of law. Cyber warfare. I've just, just been talking to a very major figure in the armed forces who so, talked about it being relentless was his word. Are you sort of soft peddling a bit on, on the threat? Not at all. First of all, I think we do need to find a way to live alongside China because they are a powerful and successful country. But the closeness of our relationship to China will be determined by choices that China itself makes. Do you feel, and I don't mean this in a very political way, but a bit conflicted in the sense that you have a, a household that you know is, is at ease with China and modern China, 
your children, I think, are growing up speaking both languages. And yet this is a tense relationship. And Huawei, in some ways, has shown how quickly it can flare up. Uh, it's not conflicted. It makes me better informed. I see the uh, the wonderful richness of Chinese culture. And I see what China could become, a truly extraordinary country and an immensely positive influence in the world. And that's what I want, but it's not for me to say. That's obviously for the people of China and the government of China to decide. But I'm also very clear-eyed about the ways this thing could go wrong. What are the chances that next time we see you, you're the leader of the Conservative Party and indeed the Prime Minister? Well, all I'll say is you get slightly longer odds on me than some of the other candidates, so I'm the one if you want to make money. There's the entrepreneur. Jeremy Hunt, thank you very much. Thank you. And of course, we want to know what you think. Which of the Tory contenders would get your vote to lead Britain through Brexit? And what about Huawei? Should Britain and America take a tough line or seek a compromise? Do let us know via email, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio, and I'd love to hear from you. If you like our journalism, then do subscribe. 12 issues for $12 or £12. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.